0: Hey what's up, I'm Jason Halden, director of Deathgasm and Guns Akimbo. You know, the, the Harry Potter with guns meme? We're currently running a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for Deathgasm 2 Gormageddon and we need your support. We want to make the craziest, most awesome heavy metal horror film the world has ever seen. Better than Trick or Treat, Better than Black Roses, Better than Rock and Roll Nightmare, even better than Shock em Dead. Deathcasm 2 Gormageddon is going to blow those films out of the water and we're making it for true fans of horror, splatter and metal. It's not going to be some watered down PG blessed wankfest. Hence the crowdfunding campaign. We've got Matt Heafy from Trivium on board to compose the film's score and we're chatting to Nuclear Blast Records about tapping into their roster of metal legends for our soundtrack. We've also got some killer cameos lined up for the film like horror metal legends Gua, Onyx the Fortuitous and more to be confirmed. So please go check out our Kicks the campaign pre-order a blu-ray soundtrack get killed on screen or any other great reward of your liking just go to kickstarter.com and search for deathgasm 2 our campaign ends october 24th we'd love to get your support thank you so much
1: hi i'm lou graham and you're listening to monsters madness and magic right here
2: all right folks welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast i'm your host justin Here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, I chat with iconic singer and songwriter Lou Graham about westerns, auditioning for Foreigner, recording the Lost Boys soundtrack, discovering your own voice, and more. As always, thanks for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. All right, Lou. Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above?
1: All the above. <laughs> all the above. Yes, and more.
2: So, uh, since you're all the above, let's start with books. Then, did you have an author or maybe a genre that you leaned towards growing up?
1: It was always history. I, I read. I remember reading the uh, biography of Wyatt Earp, Daniel Boone. You know, historical figures, uh, mostly in, in our country's history.
2: I'm the same, you know, I was, I guess most kids go through like a cowboy or a dinosaur phase. I was a Billy the Kid fan growing up. <laughs>
1: that's right, that's right. I didn't care which side of the law they were on. You know, I just just like to read something interesting and in, with a lot of action in
2: it. Yeah, yeah. So when you say you were you were causing trouble, is it, uh, you know knocking mailboxes off the post or <laughs> uh,
1: not, not quite anything like that but you know we'd be playing a game of touch football with with a bunch of kids my age or sometimes a little younger and the touch game eventually w- would descend into tackle ultimately somebody would go home crying
2: so whereabouts did you grow up by the way
1: in uh, uh rochester new york my hometown forever i did i did move to to uh westchester county right above new york city when when foreigners started because it was so expensive to live in New York City, the kind of stipend I was given before the first album was released was enough to get me a one-bedroom apartment out of the city.
2: Lou, what about your parents? Were either of them musically inclined? Do you think that's where you got the roots from?
1: I'm sure it was. My my dad played trumpet. He was a very good trumpet player. And when he was in high school and a little after, he had a big band. And ultimately, he was looking for a singer and this sweet little uh, strawberry blonde came and auditioned and got the job, and that ended up being my mom.
2: So your dad taught you a lot about music early on, you say?
1: Yes, he did. Uh, when he'd come home from work and on the weekends, he'd always have the big band jazz station playing in the background to everything mm. you know, that we were doing around the house. My mom had told him that when they got married and they started a family, that he couldn't be out playing clubs till 2 in the morning, and, and then being to work the next day at 6.30. That doesn't make for a, a good life. And he, he uh, worked at a, a metal facilitating factory. They made desks and uh, file cabinets and things. He operated the shears that would cut the big metal pieces into shape. And one wrong move on those, you could lose a finger or a hand, you know?
2: Yeah, no more trumpet.
1: Yep, so, so my mom more or less convinced him to put the trumpet away for a while. And that ended up being 22 years until all the kids were grown and out of the house. Then my dad picked up his horn, started practicing, got in touch with a couple guys that he played with when he was young and found out that they were still playing, and they put together a big band in the 80s and 90s.
2: That's a cool story, so he did pick it back up. <laughs> pick
1: it back up, yeah, and we lived in the town of Gates, and it was a swing band, so the band was called the Swingers. Uh, and, and I actually got a chance to sit in with them a couple times and, and sing, sing a couple of those uh, those songs from the 40s.
2: So what did your dad think when you decided to pursue music? Was it a proud moment for him?
1: It, it was a problem for my mom and dad because mm. although they really didn't know the extent of what that kind of life could be, they, they knew from their experiences that if uh, somehow I was weak or started off on the wrong foot or something, that it could lead to alcoholism and, and uh, drug abuse and washing out. You know, They were very concerned about that for me. They didn't want that.
2: So, Lou, when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind?
1: Rawhide, The Rebel, Nick Adams, Gunsmoke for sure.
2: Western fan then, just in general. (laughs) (laughs) What about the uh, first movie you saw in theaters? Do you remember that? Old Yeller. Oh, that's a rough one.
1: It's a great movie, but the ending is terrible.
2: Yeah, I bet there wasn't a dry in the theater.
1: (laughs) Right, yes. You're totally right.
2: So this is just something I like to ask everyone, just a general question, because you never know... uh, What scared you as a kid?
1: The neighborhood I was in. My street was a good street, and some of the streets right around there were good. But in general, it was a very tumultuous, somewhat violent neighborhood. Uh, Cop cars getting turned over and burned, and people getting knifed and stuff. My, My brother went to, was in his first year at West High School in that area. One day after school, he found everybody running, running like crazy down the hallways. And out the front door, He said, and he saw police cars in the street. And on one side were the kids from the the high school. And on the other side were were people from the neighborhood. And they met in the middle. And there were knifings. I think three or four people died. Holy shit. A couple of them were the high school students. And it it was a big mess when my brother, my my parents were worried about him even getting home. But he did did get home. He was okay. But within the next week, there were about seven or eight houses on my street that went for sale, and ours was one of them.
2: Was that your older brother?
1: Yes, it is. Gotcha, it gotcha. He was the drummer in my band.
2: So was it always the voice for you, Lou? Did you ever pick up an instrument or anything, or did you just...
1: I be- I began as a drummer. I started taking lessons when I was eight years old. I ended up in, in the school band playing timpani. Timpani is the big uh, brass, and, and then I was in marching band playing the big field drum, mm. which made a ton. Finally, after I heard the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, I talked my dad into finding me a set of drums so I could start learning how to play that. He couldn't afford to get me a a new set or even a good use set. He went to his brother who used to play drums back in the 40s and got his set that he didn't use anymore. And the bass drum was about 26 inches high. (laughs) And and the Tom Toms clipped onto the rim of the bass drum it was primitive, but it was my first set of drums, you know. I managed to get them set up the way I wanted and practice every day. Listen to this now. When I was done practicing, I'd leave the basement and go out and go down the street and play with my friends. And then after supper, I'd go down to play my drums again. And I'd sit on the stool, and I couldn't even hit the sticks on the snare drum because the snare drum was so high. I couldn't reach the cymbals anymore. They were too far away. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? So the next day when I practiced the drums and I was going to go out to play with my friends after, instead of running down the street to play with my friends, I ran around to the other side of the house and looked in the basement window. Who do you think I saw there? Ben. <laughs> because Ben was playing trumpet. My dad was teaching Ben trumpet. Ben wanted to play drums. So every time I left to go down the street, he'd go down and set the, the drums up to his size, who he's bigger than me. When he was done, he'd just walk away. He didn't think about me sitting down there and not be able to, to reach the drums <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he went on to be a berkeley graduate for percussion
2: so is there a moment where you where you can point to early on lou where you did discover your voice that you could sing maybe in the church choir or something
1: actually i wasn't in the school choir or the church choir but when i was playing drums and, and uh, there were other people singing in the band that i was in i was always singing strong background or the number two harmony you know and then it got to the point when when we stopped doing cover songs and started writing our own material And I was singing all that material while playing drums, just like Phil Collins and some of the other guys, you know? We were finding that from behind the set of drums, I wasn't able to put the emotion of the song across. I was too busy, you know, hitting things. (laughs) So we decided to look for a lead singer. And we looked and we looked and we auditioned and we couldn't find anybody that could fit the bill. But suddenly we found a drummer. So I reluctantly got off the set of drums and went up to the front. And then I started to become a singer.
2: Did you ever have to deal with any stage fright or anything like that throughout your career? Maybe even early on?
1: Early on I did. When I first became the singer, the the thought of going on stage with the focus on me was really frightening. And I remember some shows in Foreigner, even after the band had achieved a modicum of success and we were playing big venues, like to be on with uh, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, it was just a very intimidating situation. You know, I, I had to muster all my confidence and bravado and go out there and kick butt you know
2: yeah yeah and you did so what do you recall uh, about your very first time on stage whatever you consider that to be you know was your very first band in a bar or whatever
1: uh, it was a bar a truck stop with a bar and it was called jerry's el rancho it was really people who who stop to get gas, and then would pull in for a drink, you know?
2: Yeah, was that in the New York area?
1: It was Rochester, New York,
3: yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I I remember uh, playing my drums with, with my band called The Infirmary. That band started, the guitar player was one year older than me, and in high school with me, the other two guys were about 10 years older than us in their late 20s, early 30s. And the band, for our first band, I couldn't ask for anything better. It was very good. I had good memories.
2: When would you say that you started to take music seriously and you realized, you know, maybe I can make a career out of this thing?
1: The next band I was in, we were still covering still covering some people's songs. Not so much Top 40. We would we would get the albums and cover secondary album arrangements, you know? We were doing uh, bands like uh, Traffic and Humble Pie and, and Free. We were doing uh, some of the, the pop stuff that was going on in America. Our manager was the Northeastern representative for A&M Records, and he was, ge- he was getting us the promotional albums and giving them to us, and we would pour over them and find some obscure song that was just cool, and we'd learn it. At that point, we were playing shows and playing about 40% to 50% songs that the audience had never heard before. I don't know what they thought, but there was little to no response when we would finish. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then on top of that, then we started doing original material with that in the mix and for some reason our original material started getting more response than the cover songs we were doing we played a show in a big hall with aerosmith there was a representative for chrysalis records there i don't know what he was doing there but he was there and he really liked the band and within a month six weeks we had a a deal with chrysalis records and we recorded a single and they had no offices in the u.s they were strictly a european label and they were making plans to come over and set up an office in New York, Nashville, LA, Chicago, and then they would then they would have the clout and the promotional department to push a record if it was released in the states because we released our first single they had no one in the US to promote
2: it. That's hard to think about in the modern age that we live in where you click it a button. Like yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it it seems like a totally worthless experience. And we were getting getting good airplay in the Northeast, just on the merit of the song. We were to the point of saying, as you can see, we're doing well in the Northeast. If you had some more promotion people here, we could be doing that well in a good part of the country. And by the way, we're ready to start recording our album. And in the meantime, they changed their mind about coming to the U.S. They totally called off operations in the U.S., remained a european label and we asked out of our contract and they gave us our release and just about that time we played a show i think with Procol Harum. whiter shade of pale was one of their big hits they were they were a great band and Capitol records representative was at that show and heard us and wanted wanted uh, he, he was on the phone talking to, to his superiors and and we got signed to it to a two-album deal and, and we began recording and we went out Opening for KISS. We were supposed to open the whole tour for KISS. That would have been huge for us. So our first show was in Boston. We played the Boston Music Hall and the place was packed to the rafters. And we went on, this little band from Rochester, and we kicked butt. We got a standing ovation. When we were done with our final song, we got the standing ovation. We left the stage and Kiss's tour manager said Hey, can't you hear you're getting an ovation? Go answer your ovation. So we went back out on stage and played another song, and we got another ovation, and we came off the stage and and thanked him, and we went to our dressing room. So it was a big win for us on our first show, and we stuck around and heard Kiss, and they sounded great. The guys in the band, we we had an old big old Ford station wagon. We drove back to Rochester from Boston, and the uh, crew guys, with all our equipment, were about an hour and a half behind us. I got home, I went to bed, and about an hour later, I got a phone call from the head of the crew saying, this show took place on Christmas Eve, by the way, 1975, and the guy guy from our crew said that they hit a patch of ice, the truck slid off the New York State Thruway and tipped over, and he said that all the, the, the three guys from the crew, him and two other guys, we were all right, he says, we got bumps and bruises, He says, but we're all right, he says, the truck doesn't look so good. He says, a big truck carrier came and put it back on its wheels and put it up on a, a truck flatbed and took it off the next exit and parked it at a gas station. Me and the bass player went back. We left at about 4.30 in the morning, went back to pick up the guys in the crew. This happened around Albany that they slid off the expressway. And we went back, it took us three and a half hours to pick them up. And we tried to get the, the back door, sliding door of the of the truck open so we could assess the damage. It went up about three inches and wouldn't go any farther. We all went back and had Christmas with our families, not knowing what it looked like inside that truck. So we called the station the day after Christmas and they said they got they got the door open, come and look. So a couple of us went down and the amps were all smashed in where, where the material was in the front, the speakers were sh- shattered, the heads were all broken. The drums, even though they were in cases, when we lifted up, they were out of round. They weren't round anymore. They were oblong. And the B3 had the legs knocked off. It was a big mess. The truck was totaled. 75% of our instruments were not usable again. And we were supposed to be in Miami on the 27th of December to play a show with KISS and there was no way we were gonna make it. So I called KISS's tour manager, let him know what happened to, to us after we left them that night in Boston and let him know we we're trying to, to get some financing to put some kind of equipment in a small truck together to continue with our responsibility as an opening act, finish the tour. We got together with our parents, all the guys in Black Sheep, and begged them to finance us to get some used equipment, a somewhat of a used truck to get everything to Florida and for the next bunch of shows we were playing with this. It was a recession in the US at that time. That was the beginning of the gas lines. Nobody's parents had enough money to help us, even if they put whatever they had together, it wouldn't have cracked the ice on what we needed. Our next thought was, let's call the record company because we're promoting an album that is coming out on their label by us performing and getting a following worked up, we sell the albums, that benefits them. And so we call them, let them know what happened and ask them if they could finance us to continue this tour that they put us on. They said that they would talk about it and get back to us. 10 minutes later, they got back to us saying that they're not gonna do it and they dropped us from the label, just like that.
2: How is that legal?
1: We had a local Bumpkin lawyer who wasn't a music attorney. He couldn't find anything in the contract that said that they couldn't do that. So here we were now with a truck and equipment that's destroyed. This was December. We didn't get our insurance check for the truck and the equipment until May. The guys in the band, we would all meet once a week to talk about what can we do. We all had part-time jobs. We were saving our money to get little uh, Fender uh, twin reverbs and a set of U- small set of used drums and starting to play clubs in Rochester again. That's what we planned on doing. And then while we were in one of those meetings, my dad called me and said, there's this guy named Mick who keeps calling and he wants to talk to you. Now, let me preface this by saying Black Sheep's manager got us into the auditorium theater in Rochester to hear Spooky Tooth. And the guitar player in Spooky Tooth at that time was Mick Jones. So we heard Spooky Tooth set and they were very good. And then we got to meet them backstage after. I had the two Black Sheep albums and gave them to Mick. And I said, this is for you to listen to and hear here, here, what, what, where we are musically, what our style is and our songs and stuff. He thanked me, and apparently he liked what he heard because his call, when I finally did talk to him, he said, I'm not in Spooky Tooth anymore. I'm putting together a new band. I have management, I have backing. I like the way you sing. He says, I like your style of vocals. He says, would you consider coming to New York and auditioning for this new band of mine? I paused, I says, you know, Mick, that's that's, a, that's an awesome offer, I says, but I'm loyal to my band, we were on the verge of something really good, and an accident took us out, for me to bail out at this point, I says, I couldn't live with myself, I says, I, I, I have to keep trying to put my band back back together and in a good situation, I says, I appreciate the offer, it sounds very interesting, but I'm going to have to pass, and he says, he says, okay, he says, listen, is it okay if I call you back in about a month? I says, sure, so I went and told, told the guys in Black Sheep, who it was that called and what the offer was. And they looked at themselves, they looked around, and then they looked at me and they said, what are you kidding? You're not going to go? I says, this is my band right here. I says, regardless if there's no equipment, this is my band. And they said, we appreciate that, Lou, but we can sense that that this is also the end of your band. Mm. Why don't you go and see what you can do in New York? So very reluctantly, when Mick called back, I told him that I spoke to the guys and they're encouraging me to, to go to New York and try out for the band. I said so. I will. So he sent me a ticket. I flew to New York. It wasn't a live audition. We went to a studio where they had tracks recorded already of "Feels Like the First Time," "At War with the World." Can't remember what else. A couple other songs. We would listen to the music and Mick would would sing the melody to me, and we had the words written out. So I went in and started singing the songs. It took a little while to get comfortable doing that, you know. But I sang. I think I sang three of the songs. And when I came back in from the live room, they were like, that sounded awesome, Lou. That was really good, Lou. So Mick says, he says, tomorrow, he says, you wanna come to my apartment and we'll see how, how it feels like if we work on a new idea? And I said, sure. Well, I had gone to New York with a little satchel with two changes of underwear <laughs> and two things, two changes of socks and one extra T-shirt. We wrote Long, Long Way From Home. We were working on Cold as Ice. We were working on a bunch of different songs and then we were rehearsing them. We would work on the songs in the evening and the next day we would we would rehearse the songs with the band. Our manager had had a penthouse floor, it was an eighteenth floor, and the offices were all the way around the outside and the inside was a big empty room that became our rehearsal room. So we were working and, and one time I stopped the band, I says I says, you know what? I says, I've been working working hard with you guys for two and a half weeks and with you too, Mick. I says, no one's ever told me if I'm in or not, you know, if, I, if I have the job. They started laughing. They said, what do you think? We'd, we'd work you this hard if you weren't going to be in.
2: If you had a to pinpoint a place in your own head, Lou, where you, you're, you're with Foreigner now, is there a moment you can point to where you think, oh, holy shit, I've made it?
1: we got a booking agency. We were doing some some uh, rock clubs, New York City area. So we would drive in together to rehearsals. And, and he had a big old Buick Riviera that we were driving in, you know. And it was a great car. And we were on the West Side Highway, which is filled with, with bumps. Every time the two cement pieces meet, they were like this, you know. All of a sudden, we're listening to WNEW. And Scott Muni says, here's a new song for you by a brand new band, half Brits, half American. They're called Foreigner, and the song is feels like the first time. And the song came on the radio. We cranked it up. It sounded so good. Dennis was getting so excited he had to pull over the side of the road. (laughs) That's the first inkling that I knew that we had something good, and we stood a chance in making it.
2: You've said in other interviews, Lou, that uh, you felt that your best work with Foreigner was... Foreigner 4, the fourth album, uh, album 4. So when you look back on that process of making that album, were you, are you guys just hitting on cylinders at the right time creatively? Is that why you think it popped?
1: The Head Games album, we had Roy Baker, Roy Thomas Baker producing. The songs were not 100% done. We left a little room for him to put his influence on it. And we were waiting, waiting for him to kind of like Queen Sound and some of the other bands he produced, their, their sound is special to them. We were waiting for him to put the magic on our music, too. It didn't come. He, he was having marital problems. He was hitting the bottle heavily and he would sh- show up like that for our sessions. So the album it was done and there were good songs on there, but it, it didn't sound finished us, it sounded like it was three quarters done and we just put it out. It didn't get the good reviews that the other ones got. It didn't sell nearly as well as any of the first two albums. So w- when that album finished and we started writing songs for the next album, we let Ian McDonald and Al Greenwood, we let them go. We needed innovative playing with a fresh mind and not no preconceived Ideas of what foreigners should sound like, and they were kind of they were kind of locked into the first two albums, and everything they played on the new song sounded like we heard it before. So we reluctantly let him go. It, it didn't go well when we let him go. There were hard feelings and stuff. So it was just Dennis, Elliot on drums, Rick Wills on bass, Mick on guitar, and myself on vocals. Our producer for that album was Mutt Lang. He had just gotten done producing. ACDC and a number of other groups that had had big hits and it was mostly his sound that was appealing to us but we had heard through friends in those other groups that he was also an idea guy. He would hear a good song and find ways not to necessarily make it better but more interesting so it would catch somebody's ear the first time they heard it. He worked with us on things like that. He he was a big ACDC fan and for instance when we wrote Jukebox Hero you know it starts off With the vocal kind of soft and laid back, with the tension building, you know, and it took one guitar, you know. He he wanted me to start screaming, right from the word go. I said that's the not the dynamic of the song. Believe me, it goes balls to the wall from about the middle to the end. I says, but but the tension is building in those first few verses. I says you got to let that build before it boils over. And he reluctantly let it go and confided in me later that his idea really wouldn't have worked for the song if we had accepted it. And he's glad that we stuck to our guns. He had a really good engineer that was with him all the time. It, w- it was just a terrific, terrific songs, terrific performance, and great production. And that album ended up being our first number one album.
2: So following that album, I think the next one was uh, Agent Provocateur. That took a few years to come to fruition. What do you remember the sticking points be there?
1: For me, the sticking points were when we started writing songs. Nine out of ten ideas that Mick showed me, he was playing keyboard. And they were mid-tempo, somewhat rock songs, not not heavy or anything. There were good songs, and the music was nice. But it wasn't dynamic in any stretch of the imagination the way 4 and 4 was. And then, then there was I Want to Know What Love Is. And he and I, he played me the idea for that song, and I liked it. And I was not a ballad guy, but that's, that song was very special. And we worked on that song. He had a house in Bedford Hills, which was about 20 minutes from my house in Gatona. So I was over his house at least five out of seven nights a week having dinner and working till one or two in the morning with him on that song specifically. And we would just hit creative dead ends, walk away from it frustrated, kept plugging away. And we ended up getting the body of the song correct and the, the, the chorus lyrics and melody the way we wanted it. And uh, we were set to go in and record it. Mick had a friend who he knew from from years ago. He heard the song and told Mick that he had been working for a gospel label the past few years. And he says, I know what the song needs. He says it needs a gospel choir in the choruses. And and Mick was taken aback. And he thought about it. And he goes, you could be right. His friend says, I have just the choir for you. It's New Jersey Mass Choir. He says, they've had hits on their own in the gospel charts. On the day that they came down to, to sing the choruses, I was in one studio next door to where they were, just myself and an engineer. I was singing the lead vocal to the song, which hadn't been done yet. Mick was consumed with the choir and making sure that they sounded the way they should. And I was in the next studio over singing the lead vocal. Usually when I would sing a lead vocal, Mick w- wouldn't be more than three feet away from me, offering suggestions, little criticisms, and making sure it came out the way he wanted it. When I walked in there to sing that lead vocal, I didn't see him for four hours. And when I saw him, I handed him the tape, and I said, I'm done. And he looked at me like, what do you mean you're done? I haven't even heard it yet. He didn't say that. But then with the the gospel choir there, in front of the mics, he played my version with my lead vocals on it, and my vocals on on the chorus, too. And the choir sang along with, with the choruses. I got goosebumps and chills all over my body, and I looked over at Mick, and he was crying. So... When we were recording that album, at the end of completion of every song, Mick and I would sit down at a table and on a little piece of paper we would write out what we thought the split was for the song between the two of us as writers, you know? And we'd done that from album one. So like Hot Blooded was fifty fifty. Double Vision was sixty for Mick, forty for me. You know, and other songs had different different splits. And I wrote Sixty for Mick, Forty for Me, and I slid that piece of paper over to him and he slid one over to me. So I saw him look at my piece of paper and, and, and he, he didn't smile or anything. He had stone face on it. And I picked up my piece of paper. You know what he had on it? 95.5 for him. We had worked on that song since it was just a little tiny idea for weeks and weeks and weeks until it became a song. The arrangement of the song and plus I sang the ad-libs and I sang the hell out of the song and his best offer was 95.5 i was insulted i was angry and i knew right away why it was because he knew that song was going to be number one and he wanted it all for himself but he would sacrifice five percent i tore the piece of paper up and i says nick i know why you're doing this i says you want the song for yourself so it just says jones under writers i says you do that i says i said i don't want any part of it so he did song went to number one. The song itself sold millions, millions and millions of songs. I think it went two and a half times platinum just for the single. It was immediately re-recorded by Winona Judd, had a worldwide hit with it. So it was it was a number one hit for it. He made millions and millions of dollars off just that song. I didn't see a nickel. How do you think that affected us in that, the next time we were going to do an album? Yeah,
2: yeah, I can totally so, see.
1: So after, after the Album with I Want to Know What Love Is, w- w- was done. That was the only. Well, that was yesterday. Was it was a hit too, but but that's it. Usually we had, we had three or four singles. It went deep into the album cuts. But with him playing keyboards most of the time, the FM stations weren't playing the song the songs either. You know, after the success of I Want to Know What Love Is, he and his wife we toured to support that album, obviously. And then after the tour's over, he and his wife. One on a round the world yacht trip. He was gone about four and a half months. In the time that he was gone, I wrote and recorded my first solo album.
2: The solo album was Ready or Not, so your experience pretty much saying that your relationship, your professional relationship was fractured on uh, I Want to Know What Love Is, and that's what ushered you to make your first solo album.
1: That's correct, yeah.
2: At the same time, I believe, is when uh, you created. Lost in the Shadows for the Lost Boys soundtrack, correct? That's
1: exactly right. Yes, it is.
2: Did they, do you think I Want to Know What Love Is, did that help you land that opportunity or was that already in the works?
1: That, that was already in the works. Uh, our producer, the director of, of Lost Boys, called our producer who knew he was working with, who he knew he knew was working with us and asked if we had any song ideas that he could possibly use for this new movie, The Lost Boys. And we did have an idea and we started to i had some of the words done but but i just you know we tailored the lyric to suit ambiguously to suit the movie we saw roughs of movies so we knew the flavor of the movie you know m- m- made the instrumentation very hard and tough but 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 a little on the spooky ethereal side you know not ethereal like yes ethereal like the twilight zone so he was going to use that somewhere in the movie he did he used it during the motorcycle chase
2: did you enjoy the film? When did you see it? When you saw it for the first time? Did you ever watch
1: it? I well, loved it. And before it was released, he came to New York, and we did a video. All the stars were there, and in the video, and and we were like in in a in a, a wooden circus wagon with with the wooden bars going down and stuff. And they were all freaks in there, you know. We had the 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 crew kind of from underneath rocking the wagon, making it look like we were going over uneven tracks and stuff, you know. That's the way the video turned out. And uh, so I, I got I got to meet um, everybody: Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, the whole crew. Yes, it was it was really fun, really fun. They gave me. One of their leather jackets with the leopard down the leopard painted down the side of one sleeve and stuff. It was, it was an awesome, all around an awesome, awesome experience. It was very special. When I did see the movie in its entirety, it was, it was awesome to hear that song at the top of the movie and then hear it during the motorcycle chase, too. It was fantastic.
2: Just that film in general has one of the best movie soundtracks of all time.
1: I think so, too. Mm. And you know what else it has? Lasting power. You know that? It's still. Still a huge audience for it. I think there will be for a long time coming.
2: All right, that's a mark of any great music, great movies, if it stands the test of time. You know,
1: like I said, well, he he and his wife were on their world cruise. I recorded and with Atlantic's permission, because they knew he was gone for a long time too, released my first solo album, and I got a spot as special guest for Steve Miller, which was a very good break. His his audience is a little different than mine. He's his music is not as hard and, and is tough, but but it's still good music. Us in the opening s- slot playing Midnight Blue and Ready or Not and some of, some of those songs, his audience gleaned right to us. It, it, was, it was awesome being a part of his tour. Apparently, when Mick finally did get back and found out that I wrote and recorded a solo album, it was not only released, but I was on the road promoting it. He went through the r- roof. He <laughs> went and started chewing out Atlantic Records, who were high up on the ladder, had control over his career. So he's chewing people out that he should just have his mouth shut. And then he finally got around to calling me. He says, you having fun, Lou? He says, I hope your album's doing good. I haven't heard it. But we're starting to record our next album, and I need you back here now. The I says, I'm in the middle of a, of a tour with Steve Miller promoting my album. I said, if there's anything that I learned from you, was that when you're on the road promoting an album, there should be nothing that discourages you or interrupts that. I says I'm taking those words as truth. So if you want my help, when the tour's done in another four to five weeks, I said I'll be glad to come back to New York and start working on the album.
2: How do you take that? Not good.
1: <laughs> so I finished my tour with Steve Miller. One fantastic. It, it, it made a lot of good for, for the the album, promoting the album like that and. And when I finally got back to to uh, the studio with Mick and the rest of the guys, the rest of the guys were, were hey Lou, heard your album, it's awesome, man. Let's go, good luck with that. You know, Hugging me and, and shaking my hand and stuff. And Mick wa- was sulking. The writing on that album didn't go well. I, I barely had anything with any of the songs, maybe out of 10 songs, maybe three songs, I had a part in writing it. And it got to the point that that I, I I didn't feel any, any connection with him uh, creatively. Any small idea that I put in, he would said he would say, "Yeah, great," and then ignore it, not use it. So so I saw the way that was going. So I didn't volunteer anything for any songs anymore. He wrote them all. But when it came time for me to sing, he usually I would I would usually spend a day and a half on each song, unnecessarily so. But that's what we did because I would sing it. And he would make me go back and do it again, telling me to sing this this way and sing that phrase that way. And I try his ideas, and they sucked. <laughs> you know, he, they used to be pretty good. I used to take his ideas and, and kind of make them mine, and they were they were very good, you know. But 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 the stuff that he was suggesting to me, really, what was maybe, maybe his brains fell overboard on that on that, uh, <laughs> ocean story, you know, because it, it it didn't sound like anything. From the Mick that I knew, and he was insisting that I I I sing them that way, you know. I was right. out of the creative element of the album, and now he wants to tell me how to sing again, like he did when I first joined the band. So I told him, I said, I says, I appreciate the suggestions, Mick. I says, but but I have an idea how I want to sing it. I says, I'm going to sing it two maybe three times for you right now. I says, then I'm going home. So I did. I sang I sang it three times through. Every one was a little bit different from the other, but but all keeping in with the way I heard the song melody and everything. And and, and he says, don't don't you want to listen through and pick up the words and the verses that that you like better? I says, I says, Mick, I says, doesn't make a difference. What I like better, you're going to pick what you like. And that's going to be it. I says, so you don't need me around for any of that. I'm going home. And that's the way it was for every song on that album. Every song.
2: That was pretty much the end of your creative relationship, you'd say.
1: It was the end of the creative relationship for 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 a little while. That album didn't do beans either. It, next to Head Games, it was the worst selling album. Atlantic Records didn't promote it for beans either. That was the end of our relationship with Atlantic Records too.
2: I know you ultimately leave the band, Lou. How do you how do you guys mend it to the point where you come back for that second stint?
1: Well, you know, I I I was. Uh, finishing up the completion of my second album by that time, I got a call from him in a very friendly voice asking me how I was and how I was doing and how's the album coming and asked me, don't forget in between there he got that that other singer, I can't remember what his name is and they did an album that completely didn't get any airplay, didn't get any sales and I think Atlantic Records told him he better find me and get on the phone if he wants any band at all to continue so we did ask me when i was done with the album before i started touring do you think i could spend a little time and work on this new foreigner album? so i did a short tour with with my for this uh second solo album and then i came came around and we started working on the foreign foreigners last last album with the original lineup you know or somewhat the original lineup you know that name escapes me too can you look that up
2: is it Mr. Moonlight?
1: That's correct, yes. Mm,
2: yep, that's it.
1: When we were working on that album, Mick let me take the lead in ideas of how to shape the song and the temperament that I liked in the song and stuff, and, and how how filled with quadruple guitars it should be and stuff. And I, I wanted it thinned out a little bit. I wanted it hard and heavy, but not so many instruments one on top of the other. Next to Foreigner 4, that's my favorite album. I think they're as good as almost anything foreigner's ever done. But we were, we were not with Atlantic. We were with a new record company who promised us the moon and they didn't promote it. It wasn't even in the record stores when when we were touring and we'd go to a different city. I'd go right to the biggest record store and and find Foreigner and leave through it. I'd find all the other albums, but the new album wasn't in stock. Not because it sold out, because it was never in stock. So we we realized too late that we signed with a record company that made promises and didn't deliver. That album, we played a couple songs from it on our live show, and most of the people we talked to said they really liked that new song. When is that going to be out? And we were like, it is out.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's when you know. <laughs> well,
1: we were all really disappointed because we were all so proud of the album. It was, it was a different, uh, simplified foreigner, but but very tough and very in the pocket. there's so many people who either don't know the album or or have never heard it and don't know how to get it so we had an opportunity opportunity to do shows in belgium with a an outfit called night of the proms and what it is they would get guitar players and singers from about eight or ten different well-known bands backed by an all-star european quartet a full 80-piece orchestra and a 30 voice choir and we had to pick what two songs we would do everybody was able to do two songs and we picked i want to know what love is and juke montera crowded house was there who i have the most most respects for their great great band geez there were a lot of other bands there uh, uh billy idol was there pointer sisters were there I-, I can't even think of the lineup but but there were so many Great performances from from the either the keyboard player and the singer, the guitar player and the singer, mm-hmm. you know, That's and cool. then that back, backed up by the all star band, the orchestra, and the choir. We played in in Brussels in an indoor tennis facility that had five tennis courts in it. Can you imagine five full <laughs> tennis courts? That place sold out, held eighty six thousand people. We played there, I think, five nights in a row, and they were sold out every night when we first got there we were wondering what this big paved area was next to the building it was for the buses from other countries to pull in
2: well uh lou i'm not going to keep you all afternoon here i just to wrap up i like to ask everyone this question have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal i don't think so hey there you go
1: <laughs> honestly if it happened i think i would know it for what it was right and i can't i can't say that i ever have
2: I ask everyone that question. Sometimes I get a 30-minute answer. Sometimes it's five seconds.
1: I mean, I could have made something up. Right. Right.
2: Well, Lou, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. I want to thank you for giving me some of your time here. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. My pleasure. You have a great rest of your day. Nice Uh, talking to you. Bye-bye now. Take care.
1: All right. Bye-bye.
2: All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Lou. As always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you back next time.
3: Monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon we're talking band history song analysis studio anecdotes, stories from the road it's everything a diehard night demon fan could want and more this is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the night demon story need more the sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day, all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.